welcome to Real Estate 2020 Vision, the podcast connecting you with the people behind the companies shaping the future of the real estate industry globally. My name is Guy Westlake, I'm founder of Lavanda, and today I'm thrilled to welcome onto the show John Hitchcock, founder and chairman of U-Group. John, welcome to the show. Now, U-Group have been pioneering lifestyle-led residential living for well over 20 years. You are, in fact, one of the world's largest non-hotel residential brands. Tell us, where on earth did all of this start? Uh, well, a lot longer than 20 years ago for my sins. Um, so I think, I mean, if, if I went back to early teens, I think I developed a little bit of an obsession with, they weren't called entrepreneurs then, they were sort of businessmen. And there was a lot of reading of autobiographies and a lot of like, you know, how, looking at people's lifestyles in businesses. And at the time, my mother wanted me to be a conductor. My father was an architect. My grandfather, who I never sadly got to meet, was a, was a builder. I think he started life as a carpenter. And um, so it was quite a lot of practical. Uh, and I went to a Rudolf Steiner school, which is a very creative school, very music and arts and drama orientated. Um, and, and I think perhaps in a way, wanting to be an entrepreneur out of that environment was a, was a little bit a little bit at odds with the school system and um i left school young i you know i i i was doing lots of paper rounds caddying anything i could do to earn some money window cleaning petrol pumps and uh and then i used to play lots of chess and and, and uh, one day my my the fiance of my chess partner came home and said there's this chap who He's not got his visa and he needs to sell this property in, in uh, South Kensington in two weeks before he has to leave the country. So at this stage, we, the innocence sort of really thrived because I didn't know that you couldn't borrow all the money to buy a house and do it up and sell it. And this was, it was, seven, it was seven little apartments. And uh, so my friend and I, we went out, I borrowed 49 quid off my mother and bought a suit. So it was one of those three-piece suits with a, a, a new man, actually, on, on the corner of Notting Hill. And, we, and then we then, got the, we then got the yellow pages and we looked under for banks and we made hundreds of phone calls to banks to ask them whether they lent money against property. And we used to then go in and time them and say how, how quickly they could they throw us out of their offices. Um, because we were asking to borrow all the money to buy this house because this guy had to leave early and we were going to turn this this building, we were going to do up these seven flats and sell them. That was the idea. Unsurprisingly, we didn't manage to find the money in time to buy this particular house, but it sowed a seed. And then I, I was visiting my parents on another occasion and I stopped off at an estate agent and went in and said, I'm looking for something to do up and sell. And, uh, I, and he said, join the queue, which was a which was a, a seminal moment, a seminal moment in my life, was joined the queue to visit the estate agent to buy something to do up and sell. Um, and, uh, and I found this tiny little house in, in a place called Whiteleaf in South Godston um, for £19,200. And by then I'd met quite a few bank managers and, and, and National Westminster Bank offered to lend me the money. It never ceases to amaze me. And actually it's very warming to hear that Fortune plays such an important role in the journeys of others. Whereabouts are you living at the time, John? Home at the time. Home at the time was uh, in. I was. In, I, we, we, I was brought up in East Sussex, but I, by then I was living in London. And um, uh, we. I did this. I, I remember. I remember. I had a budget of thirteen thousand pounds to do this 
um, do these convert this little house into two little flats. And um, and I did almost all the work myself. I did the electrics, the plumbing, and I and 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 the, the thing is on the a, exactly on the A twenty two. And for the next twenty five years before they built the M twenty five, I had to drive past this house with my fingers crossed that it was still standing, hadn't burned down. <laughs> and and uh, we had been converted into two flats, took twice as long, cost twice as much. And, um, and, and and off we went. And then the house over the road came up for sale straight after that. And then the one over the road came up for sale. And I then throughout the 80s, this is early 80s, throughout the 80s, we converted, I think, 300 houses in London into into apartments. So in the early days, the the U Empire was was focused exclusively in London, was it? Yes. Then, then I was very then I was very London focused, and uh, I got to I got to my my father designed hospitals for a living, but I got to work with him. In, in uh, he he was he was very instrumental and very um, supportive in in terms of working on the architecture and 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 the design. And I think that. If I couldn't be a conductor, which is my mother's dream, I should have been an architect, which is my father's. So there was, a, there was, well, there's one of the two. So I think I've actually taken the middle path. The role of a conductor is to bring in all the instruments at a particular time, and that's what we currently do. So, at what point did you take the step from being more of a traditional developer to being more design-led and brand-oriented? Because I'd left school before going to university, I then, I then went and attended um, university, postgraduate university. I managed to get myself in on the grounds that I'd um, been self-employed for quite a long period of time. And then I started management and marketing, which sort of sort of then if you overlay that into what the business has become, the marketing, entrepreneurship, design, branding, that, that, that was the sort of uh, the, the, the melting pot of the, of the ideas of, of the businesses we've gone on to create. So that was the 80s. And then, and then in the 90s, um, I met, um, met my new partner, Harry Handelsman, and we started Manhattan Loft Corporation together, which was, with them, it was very much into uh, design, marketing, branding. And, and we were taking rundown areas of London and bringing forward old industrial buildings Clerkenwell was the first, then we bought a large part of Bankside, we bought the whole of Hobson Street and got very involved in the bridge, the Tate, you know, the Globe and all of that and bringing that area forward. And then surprisingly, Soho as well. And, you know, Soho, when we, when we started in Soho in the early 90s, we were, it, was, it, it was a red light district. Uh, we did a, a big building with Conran there and then went on to West India Quay, which is down in um, the Docklands, which is a mixed use one of the larger mixed use projects down in canary wharf london was well, it was so buoyant during that time and i and I, I had this idea that london was not gonna it wasn't gonna last forever and it must be paris's turn i didn't do much research but i headed off to paris to start manhattan lost paris and uh that was quite a shock how so we we did three or three or four projects which was really interesting the most fascinating thing for me about that was that the chap I was working with his next door neighbour was a guy called Philippe Stark don't you love it when that happens what an amazing coincidence I knocked on Philippe Stark's door um, having having got this connection and suggested that you know that we could work together to create a, a brand that would work with other developers around the world to enhance the value of their offering to their customers at this stage we were selling shells four walls and a door and we were helping people through the concept of designing and building their own apartment so we we set about with this this idea of 
what could we do to in some way help people and and also find a business model that had some opportunity for scale and then equally the other side of the coin was to give some people some flexibility i.e., to identify what sort of style they would like and how they'd like to like to live because again we don't learn much about that at school and we tend to replicate what we've got at home and then the home world has changed so significantly during yours and, and, and my lifetimes early conran shall we say you know g plan through to ikea through to a, 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 a huge change um and that's actually just talking about europe because when we then got to travel around the world in most countries russia china many of the um, South American countries, when we, we started, you were buying shells. And then you went in and you did all the work yourselves. You got some drains and that was and that was it. So we were, in a way, breaking some boundaries there and, and also opening up an element of education and, and identity as to how people would, would, would live. And that came in the form of, of four styles, a classic, a culture, a nature, and a minimal style. And these were styles that Philippe came up with, which perhaps described you know what sort of person you might be and then then from there there was a selection of materials be they hard finishes bathrooms kitchens walls etc and then there was a selection of, of furniture that, that could go in, in in inside them so we started this business called you a uh, little bit of a crazy name um but it was the idea was that it was all about you it was about your home your life and and uh uh uh, and and it was what we could do to assist in that and the importance of home and the importance of the transition of home you know through through this era and and set off around the world we've had a fantastic sort of 20 year tour of the planet um where our role was to work with local developers but predominantly on 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 tall buildings on large, large scale buildings um where we were building communities, we were, we'd call them vertical villages. I mean, it was it's 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 a very um, particularly in in the emerging markets and newly industrialised countries, we were we were going in and and building communities from scratch. Now let's just talk about that for a second. Um, is this sort of a a kind of precursor to the classic urban multifamily style community, whereby, for want of a better word, you're building up rather than building out? We have a planet with a finite amount of space and you have, you know, when I arrived on this planet, there was perhaps three billion people. There's now seven and a half billion. We, um, we, we were, we, we perhaps are still a strongly sociable animal. We are talking to each other today. Um, and uh, there was a, um, a great lesson I learned when I was in China was, uh, it was such a macro. I was invited for, to, for a discussion where they were talking about they had 1.3 billion people. They had 650, this was 15, 20 years ago, 650 million their farmers. And they'd worked out with modern farming techniques that China only needed 50 million farmers. And they'd followed the progress of the farmer and their aspirations. And they all moved to cities because there was employment, because it was social and all these things. So therefore, they were going, they were in they were in need of building cities towns for uh, 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 600 million people and uh, um and this was the you know this was the conundrum and there was this huge force of, of nature which was people moving into cities for all these all these reasons 
and that that trend has been we when we pass we we pass fifty percent um, rural to urban uh, ten years ago or so across across the planet. And these vertical villages were, of course, necessary because they because where do you house all these people? The luxury of it, in a way, was people's lifestyles and aspirations and their cultures were much much more disseminated through the internet and through globalization and, and all of those factors that actually determining you know who you live in your with in your village with is is, is something that you, that you could that you could do and it may it may you know some countries it divides out by class and others others it might divide out by activity etc so it's a very 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 interesting time john one one question i've got is around affordability so obviously you're in the business of marrying brand and experience with accommodation to what extent is affordability a criteria for you? The concept of affordability and community is not something that I see as being um, in any way mutually exclusive. I think what you do get in society is you get pockets of affordability, but they're all within communities. Take Greenwich Village, for example, a project that we did um, five or six years ago. Big, big project. Uh it was the old hospital on on uh, that site down down in Greenwich. It was a joint venture with the City of London Corporation. Sorry, the mayor's office. Um, it was approximately six or seven hundred apartments, fifty percent partnership with a with a housing association. It wasn't something that we massively branded, but it was a completely integrated mixed use community, predominantly with social housing. And it had all the same attributes. We had a there's a there was a big leisure centre. There was a big garden. There was a all, all of these things, these components that we were advocating to put in uh, into these sites um, were all were all still there. Just a, you know, in, in a slightly in a slightly different form. There's there's definitely price differences and value proposition differences, but the overall concept of building new communities is happens at all levels of. of of, of, of society. Let's turn now to your redevelopment of Olympia in London. Would love to hear briefly what that's been like in terms of an experience uh, leading a project of, of that kind of size and scale. Yes, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful project to work on. Um, let's get it finished. <laughs> the, um, uh, I think the, the, the thing that was interesting about Olympia is when it came on the market, um, Capco decided to sell it. It had been before Capco, it had been in a, a number of other developer trader ownerships. And nobody had looked at it as a focused 14 and a half acre plot with a beautiful set of listed buildings on it. It had always been the poor cousin of Earl's Court. And, and, and so when we looked at it from the outset, we there was a basic a basic appraisal, a basic diagnosis, which was we could build this, we could build this uh, apartments service apartment built next to it, perhaps make it a hotel, but that was it, or we could look at it and and uh, in the round and so and, and look at a, at a at a bigger, more ambitious concept. And, and for me, what I what I'd done in the team and, and Lloyd and, and the team had, had done it was we'd we'd watched the exhibition business get very upset with the closing of, of Earl's Court. And so we thought if we if we actually went and celebrated the exhibition business and celebrated all of the all of the 
215 shows that we put on and we actually embellished it with hotels with a great food court with some more entertainment being in theatres and being in other things and we went to the council and the mayor's office with this idea that actually what we were going to do at the time it wasn't it wasn't on, on Hammersmith's radar at all it's one of the biggest ratepayers in in the borough and, and it was just a sort of forgotten isolated site that caused a lot of traffic jams so there was let's see what we can do with the traffic and let's see that we can bury it underneath the building let's see whether we because we have I think it's 70,000 Arctic lorry movements a year. So it's a, these, are, these, are, these, are, these are big numbers. And, and obviously, we've got the entire, and we live, we're in the middle of a res- residential area. You know? and so we, we're, we're, we're not the best of everyone's friends on day, on day one. And so we went out to the community and we had 63 days of consultation with everyone that would listen to us and talk to us and, 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 came, and came back with this idea that we would, would, you know, would really celebrate this this grand old dam who's been there for 130 years and augment it with some fantastic facilities. We're building, as I say, two hotels. One's going to Hyatt and one is going to Citizen M. We, we've got um, uh, AEG are taking a brand new music theatre. Uh, we've got another theatre coming up, which we're deep in discussions with a, another substantial party. We've sort of centralised the the F&B, uh, sorry, the food and beverage on, on, on the site. And we've, cr- and we've worked with Thomas Heatherwick, who's a great friend and a great architect, to build something that's a real statement, that's a real icon that celebrates and, and, you know, the, the, the timing of this project in terms of where we sit as a nation. You know, we're 25 minutes away from the airport. We're 25 minutes away from you know, the city. We've got a, a project that's, that's potentially a real beacon to, to London and the UK. We exhibit 130,000 businesses a year. So we're a, you know, we're a marketing platform there, and it's really, it's really what we want to do is to celebrate that and create something that celebrates that. Well, first of all, you know, huge congratulations on an incredibly ambitious and worthy project. Um, you're building a cultural hub you know, that's going to deliver monumental value to the UK economy, and I guess the question on everyone's lips is, you know, live events, hotels have all been absolutely hammered by COVID over the last twelve months. So how has the Olympia project been impacted? Uh, I, I, I mean, I laugh, you know, a year ago, we were heroes. What has been very interesting is we were in conversations. We had a, a competitive tender for both Hyatt and for Citizen M and for AEG and, and a number of others that are coming down the pipe now. Uh, none of them flinched. All we did is we spent the last year going through the the due diligence procedure of designing a building that fits fitted exactly for them um they you know come come the end of uh, of last year they signed um and these are these are substantial enterprises who have also been impacted by um the situation with them but all of them the majority i mean aeg has 315 venues you know i would imagine the majority of those are closed um, and if you think of the, the hotel Hyatt, the same. I mean, it's it's uh, these are these are so the projections and predictions seem to be. I'm not saying this is from a third party point of view. Seem to be that you know the the, the, the music's going to be turned back on. We're going to start dancing again. Well, I'm genuinely glad you say that. It offers a, a a bright glimmer of hope to us all. John, let's talk about other topics. The way we work. Do you think it will change post pandemic? Uh, yes, I, I think uh, I, I think it will be different. 
um, I was talking to somebody from Microsoft the other day, and you know, and 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 I also was <laughs> strangely, I was I was one of the characters that turned down investing in Zoom about tw- two years ago on the grounds that my WhatsApp does exactly the same as far as I was concerned, and here we are sitting on a much <laughs> on it now. All this technology existed. I was pushing our team a lot to um, to start using more video conferencing, Skype, and we set up a. A, a camera above the office table so that you could put drawings under it and you could work together and 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 everyone they said no 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 you've got to get on a plane we've got to get on a plane to go and visit these people well we've all learned how to use this technology this technology has advanced a bit having said all that i think there's a there's a prediction that you know we are going to return not completely back but largely back where we were um but with the ability to use these tools without guilt, I think a lot of people go to the office because they, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs go to the office because they feel they have to, you know, they feel they have to be in there. If they're in there at nine o'clock, everyone else is soon. I think there's a level of trust that exists, certainly with, you know, middle management plus uh, between uh, people that, that wasn't necessarily there before. I think there was a, there was a regime that, that, that existed in most people's minds is that you had to be in the office in order to be productive. Um, and I think all of, a lot of those are being questioned. We, but not all of our business, some of, it, some, some of our businesses went back to work in September and I was, I, 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 I was there and I really noticed, along with others, that, that casual chat in the corridor, you know, that, that, that it's, and that's the bit, I think, I think, managing creativity and managing that human chemical interaction is 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 going to be the piece that will come back when we go back to offices and people will realize either it's about contentment and happiness or it's just a distraction from there's there's you know the, there was the there was the monotony of work and the workplace and now there's the monotony of home into that yeah um you've got to be an optimist there as an entrepreneur and I guess the question is to you, what opportunities do you see coming out of this, if any? And how are you adapting your business, you group, in terms of your go-to-market and your strategy to capitalise on those opportunities as you see them? So, um, well, we have, a, we have a renewables energy business, which we've had for about 10 years. Uh, we've seen n- no change because of COVID. We've seen a huge change because of the Elon Musk factor and the and the acceptance of you know of electricity and electricity powered by solar and wind and and supported by batteries etc. So we've seen we've seen a lot of a lot of positive movement and that's allowed us to focus on that across Europe and and and, and the UK too. Um, we ha- we have our, our projects at the lakes in the Cotswolds, which is. Um, uh, we have about a thousand acres of what was uh, disused um, gravel pits, which we've re- we've created ten lakes, and we've created a, an entire community of um, of 170 houses so far, and we're just about to build some apartments and and a hotel. Um, and we've seen a huge change in the behavioural pattern of the owners there. Whereas it was their second home, it's now become their first home. They're on Zoom, and they're and often uh, down at the lakes because the nature of it. They're running large businesses. Bloomberg's being run from the lakes. You know, we have we have very 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 successful 
you know, CEOs of big businesses and the children are, you know, in a in an environment which is a little bit easier for them with the homeschooling um, because there's much more outside space uh, than, than, they would, than they would be in town. So I think uh, we see that model, which is we see that working um, an hour and a half to two and a half hours outside of major cities around the world. Um, and that's something that we, we are we were on our way to doing more because it's been been very successful and we've but it's certainly been accelerated by covid in terms of our thinking and we've we've seen huge spikes in demand um for uh, for rental and for sales and john is that a global phenomenon is that european tell me yes it's global i mean i was talking to i was talking to a, a chap in um uh, who's a broker in sotheby's for um in aspen uh, last night and uh, he was saying they've done 1.9 billion dollars of sales this year aspen's got 6000 homes 6000 inhabitants i mean so it's i think i, I think there's a, a a huge well whether it's short term that this is the uh, um in short term i mean 3 to 5 years whether people's people will look back on um on this is just an era uh, which you know, you had that huge, we talked about it earlier, that huge force of urbanization. And then if you take some of the, which is what's happened, if you, if you, if you, if it, you know, a pandemic is the thing that stops urbanization in its tracks. So if we take your project down in the Cotswolds, the lakes, are they typically owned? Are they rented? Are they primary residences? Are they second homes? Owned. And some of the owners rent. They are, they're all um secondary residences um but they're with, with a they have a limitation you have you, you can't spend more than 11 months there a, a year um that being said what we're seeing is we're seeing a, 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 i mean i'd say it's, obviously we're seeing a much much higher use of them of them this year both rented and 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 people um living there uh, less strangely less in this second this this current lockdown than we did in the first one but i think people have started to look at the quality of life and the quality of their lifestyle a lot more um certainly with the view to what and, and the fact that they've learned that they don't need to commute every day so what impact is all this going to have at an industry level so you can assume a few things that you can assume that for example uh air circulation is going to be increased significantly you can assume that 120 square feet that people would have for their office or it was down to 50 in, in some i remember you know some of the new um serviced office businesses sort of rather proudly saying we've got you know we've got them into 35 and 40 square foot of space and that was you know that was how they they were selling monetizing this and i think that's obviously going to change quite significantly i think um so that's going to increase the demand for space in in the office albeit that what you're then equally on the flip side of the coin you're probably going to get is that sort of i'm going to be in the office three days a week is that okay and then that's going to lead to more hot desking because that would that would allow for that certainly the larger corporations perhaps would, would be doing that um and then you've got the other side of the coin, which is, and I see it today. I was on, I was on a call just before this, 
six people on, on Zoom. And there were three people from our office, all who had the backdrops behind them. And you know, and 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 I and, and you and you, there's one or two or three reasons. A, eh? because obviously we design lovely things, and it's lovely to have this sitting in one of our apartments somewhere in the world, and making it look like that. But the other, you know, the more real reason is that you're sitting in a bathroom because you're sharing your your flat with three other couples, all of whom are on Zoom at the moment, and they're all everyone's having, you know. So we are going to have to start to address the home office again. So far, of course, you know, corporations have. Just they're just paying for the the computer and making sure they've got internet. But I think I think there's gonna there's gonna need to be if we are going to live this much much more flexible world. There's going to be there have to be some rebalancing of um, of the use of of buildings in some way, and that's strangely that puts a bit of a pressure on the number of square foot that's around. I think we might. The office market is going to be the most interesting one to watch because, you know, I think I think there'll be a lot of financial directors out there today thinking, I can get away with a lot less space after this because I can just because I can send them all home and then and but I think at some point that you know people will go, hey, I can't work at home. Yeah, I I totally agree. Actually, I mean, the house as it's been conceived and exists is not equipped for for home working, at least not the scale that we are we are now engaged in it. Let's talk for a second about technology. And I mean technology not only in the context of you group and how you harness technology, but about what gets you excited and the role that technology can play in unlocking a really bright future for the industry. Where are the opportunities? We have been involved in a a lot of technology projects. I've been watching with interest um, the printing of houses. So prefabrication in forms, it's incredibly it started to become incredibly popular um indeed i've been following prefabrication for 40 odd years and it's fair to say that a lot of the systems have always been in place but what the challenge to manage is the economic cycles you get these peaks and troughs in the market and of course once you've got a factory that's running at 100 miles an hour and you can't sell it's it's difficult it's difficult to to, to match the two we're working hard on building a co-living brand we see that there's a gap between the sort of what would be student housing and young family housing. Um, we can see that a lot of the skills that we've learned in terms of building communities will fit into that. And that's we bought two sites in London that we're currently at the planning stage for that. And that's and that's will be a, a concept that we'd roll out if you would call that technology. There is a lot of technology in in that. Um, you know, there is a, there's a there's a I, I mean, it's 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 more you know you can walk through the front door with your phone and all the, all of those sorts of things. It's not it's there's not and the the account the back the back of house systems you know the accounting systems and all of those in hotels for example are all um, they're you know becoming much much more user friendly and much much easier. Our industry is it's just, it, it, it's if you tried to, and I've tried, we've tried, revol- we've tried to do some revolutionary things. It's a front door, it's a bell, it's a bed, it's a light switch. You know, it, it, it's, it's. Uh, I think the, the the world of community has been the, in my life, has been the big change. I think there's a lot of talk, for example, about peripheral areas of London on the rise. There's a lot of talk about flats without gardens not being uh, currently in demand, which are, both of which I get. I'm not sure how much 
that will swing back. I think it probably will. So I think Mayfair, for example, will 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 return to being Mayfair, and uh, you know, and 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 those those areas of beacons of activity will continue to exist. So, John, before we wrap up, I just wanted to quickly draw upon something that you alluded to earlier, which is your other would-be career as a composer or musician. Now, I have it on very good authority that you are a great guitarist. You, in fact, collect vintage guitars. I just wanted to know, have you managed to incorporate music in some way into your professional life? And does it feature in some way, shape or form in you group? There's been many fanciful ideas about putting a recording studio into this block and that and do this and and, and we've had and we've had things like lake stock you know as we used it as a marketing idea for marketing the lakes years ago and we've had all sorts of things i i mean if i was on the receiving end of my kind of ceo application for i've got a marketing idea let's do lake stock I, I don't think it would have cut the mustard. <laughs> I don't think it would have. But it's, having said that, I think that it's quite funny because I'm not very good at socialising in our in our industry, but I tend to be, because I, I play lots of music, I tend to socialise with people I play with. And, and so that's kind of, it's been a lovely, you know, it's a, been a lovely part of my life. Um, and I haven't really sought to impose it too much on them. On, on those on those on those that I work so with. So it sounds more like something you like to keep separate, you know, for a bit of me time. It's it's your happy space. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it is I think that somebody said exactly use that exact word just recently. It's your happy space. And it is. There's a few things that I do is there's the kite surfing and, and uh skiing and and uh and they're they're things with no end. You know, you can you can always you can you you either go and and you often think oh I'm so shit at this I can't play you know I can't do it, I can't make it work you know why am I why am I not fitter why am I not you know better and there are things that that are just demanding of self rather than competing against others. Now for a question I'd like to ask everyone: Who would you, John, like to invite onto this show and hear from, and why? A lot of a lot of this year has been about um, about forecasting. So I so I picked up a book by. Um, Philip Tedlock and Dan Gardner called Super Forecasting. And I didn't know anything about this forecasting business, but there is a competition. There's an annual competition of forecasting. And, the, and it covers so many different facets of society. So it can be it could be forecasting, you know, how Iran is going to get on with Iraq in two years' time. And there's a competition. And there's a chap who lives up in um, Stanmore, I think. I can't remember where, where it is who's won this competition like about three years in a row. And his competition is the KGB, <laughs> the FBI, and who are throwing like hundreds of billions at this thing. I thought you should have him. I thought you should have him. I, I thought you should have him on it. And apparently, and, 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 and I, so I, I mean, my, my attraction to this forecasting when, you know, when I, 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 because that's what we have to do, you know, as, as, you know, when you have, when you have businesses, you have to sit down and say, well, you know, what's the, what are the threats or what are the opportunities in these situations? So I'd say get some forecasters on because it's a very murky old world out there at the moment, isn't it? Well, John, I, for one, share your enthusiasm for crystal ball gazers and would love to speak to one. So uh, sign me up. I will endeavour to hunt down your forecaster and get them on the show. In the meantime, John Hitchcock, thank you so much for joining us. You're a very busy man. You've been a pleasure to interview. And thank you very much for sharing your 2020 vision. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.
Real Estate 2020 Vision is brought to you by Lavanda, the world's leading technology platform powering flexible rentals. Check out www.getlavanda.com.